I read an interesting article this week about how every generation has a particular genre of movies they are attracted to. And about every decade, about every 10 years, there are particular themes that the wider audience resonate with. For instance, in the 1950s, there was a, a rise of the Western movies. And movies like The Searchers was a big box office hit. Now, raise your hand if you've seen this movie, The Searchers. Quite a few of you, more than at 9.30 a.m. service. Okay. Now, in the 1960s, you had the horror film genre. So Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho or Night of the Living Dead became very popular. I don't have a poster for that. In the 70s, you had the rise of the science fiction movies. So Star Wars became a big hit. In the 80s, was considered as a golden era for the action movies because of the cinematic innovations. You had movies like Top Gun, Lethal Weapon, and my wife's favorite, Die Hard. And the 90s were the rise of the independent films. So you had movies like Pulp Fiction, uh, Days and Confused, and Good Will Hunting. From about 2000 to about 2015, you had the eras of the superheroes, Spider-Man, Iron Man, and ba Batman. Now, here's why I want to pause and ask you this question. What do you think are some of the popular themes in these days? And not just in movies, if you think about podcasts people are listening to or different kinds of social media platforms, what are the recurring themes? And I was asking this question to myself because in my opinion, it seems to me that there is this longing for a journey towards discovering your own identity, a journey of self-discovery and finding your identity. And you see this even in the most recent uh, summer hit blockbuster, the movie Barbie, right? So what was Barbie about? Barbie was, she had this full-on existential crisis as she tries to figure out, figure out who she is in the real world and not in her perfect Barbie land. And I know some of you secretly watched Barbie. I know that. You know, our, I think our culture is fascinated with this idea of self-journey and self-discovery, trying to figure out who we are. Even in sports, I was watching the, the, the post-game conference uh, two weekends ago when University of Colorado lost to USC. And here's Coach Deion Sanders. And this is his direct quote. He writes, what's our identity? I don't know who we are. I don't know what we're going to do. From practice to practice, I do. But we got to translate that into the games so we are still searching for our true identity. It's the question of who are we? Who are we? And you know, our natural inclination is to try to figure out who we are by, by looking at the external things and, and listening to people who are on the outside. And that's why I like this one particular definition of identity based on this one pastor. And he writes, identity is what the most important person in your life thinks about you. Just sit with that for a moment. So if the most important person in your life is your boyfriend or girlfriend, then your values and behaviors will be shaped by their influence. And our identity is formed by the kinds of people to which we belong and what they have to say about us. So the question we're asking today is, who are you? Who are you? Because this is the question that Apostle Peter wanted the early church to grapple with in the early first century, if you have been with us, we've been going through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. Peter is a disciple of Jesus, and he's writing to these suffering Christians. 
We call these people the Christians of diaspora, people who are scattered because of their faith in Jesus. They were exiles, and because they're exiles, you could see why Peter would address the theme of identity. And, and what's really interesting about today's passage is this. As Jennifer was reading, reading, there are only seven verses, but there are 29 direct references or even direct quotes from the Old Testament. So what Peter is having to say today is, is nothing new. He's, he's plagiarizing what the Old Testament authors are saying. He's simply repeating what they've said. And there are two themes that he's trying to lift up. Those two themes are these, cornerstone and royal priesthood. So what I'm going to do today is to unpack these two, what I would call Jewish identifying icon symbols that were very important to them. Because what Peter does is that he, he, re, he reimagines and he redefines our identity in Jesus through these two icons. All right, so let's look at verse 4. Peter says in verse 4 that Jesus is a living stone and we are his living stones. And to understand the metaphor of the cornerstone or what it means for us to be living stones, we need to understand this idea of cornerstone. So let me take you back to the uh, ancient Israel. Pretend that you were living in the streets of Jerusalem and you're walking around on the dirt road. What would you see? You would see this big, beautiful, bold building designed by King David, built by King Solomon. This is a temple of God. And the people of Israel believe that the temple was a place where you can encounter the living God. The temple was a place where they believed that it was an intersection between heaven and the earth, where the heaven and earth met in between. And it was overlapped with the presence of God. And if you're a really astute Israelite, some of the scholarly Israelite people, they had this keen sense the temple was designed with something else in mind. And that would have been the Garden of Eden. Remember Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1? There's been really good scholarly work on the parallels of the Eden and the temple. And let me give you a few examples. The Garden of Eden was on high mountain, just as the temple was built on mountaintop. In the middle of the garden was a tree of life. Remember that? In the middle of the temple was what's known as the Holy of Holies. In both places, the tree of life and the Holy of Holies was the eternal, of God, of God, eternal God was present. Then you have God walking with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the afternoon in the garden. Just as when people went to experience the presence of God, they came to the temple. And the word Eden in Hebrew means delight. It's where Adam and Eve... They, they enjoy the presence of God. They delighted in his God's presence, just like how God's people would come into the temple, as Emily read, with joyful songs of praising who God is. Now, how did the ancient architects build a temple? So imagine that you were commissioned to build the temple. What would be your very first step? The very first thing that you would need to do is to find the very first stone, and they would spend days and weeks to figure out this very first stone that they would lay. And because it was so critical, it had its own title. It was called a cornerstone. 
And the craftsmen spent more time trying to figure out and how to put this cornerstone correctly because they knew that if, if cornerstone was wrong, the whole building would be ruined. But if the stone was right, it would hold all the other stones together upon the foundation. So Peter, he, he uses this imagery of cornerstone to say that Jesus is the cornerstone of all cornerstones and the people of God are the living stones. And we're to build our lives on the foundation of the chief cornerstone. And that's why Peter quotes from verse six from prophet Isaiah saying this, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, Martin Luther, a 16th century theologian, reformer, commenting on this particular passage said this. He says that each one of us, we all have our own cornerstones. Whether we know it or not, we all have our cornerstones. He says, your cornerstone is whatever you build your life on. And your cornerstone is what you turn to when your life is crumbling and falling apart. So one way to identify, if you're interested, if you want to know what your cornerstone is, a question that you need to ask yourself is this. What is the very first thought that I have when my life is not going so well? When there are hardships and challenges in life, what is that very first thought? What is that very first thing that you think of when, things, when you're in trouble? So for instance, let's say that your business is not going so well. Let's pretend that your business partner is suing you, the cash flow is low, your employees are upset at you, you're running out of money. What is your very first thought? If your very first thought is something like, you know, at least I'll be okay because I've got some money stashed away. If, if that is your very first thought, then most likely, Money is your cornerstone. Here's another example. Let's say that everyone in your social circle is moving ahead of you. Do you know what I mean? Like your friends are getting promotions. Your, your friend buys the very first house. That your friends are, are getting married first or having their first child. And you see this happen. What is your very first thought? Do, do you say to yourself, okay, I, I want to bless them in the name of Jesus? Or... Do you say something like, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I too can do this. I'm going to make this happen. I am a good person. If that is your first thought, then Martin Luther would say that most likely your cornerstone is your personal goodness and your ability to trust in yourself. You know, you know what the greatest problem in life is? It's not the fact that we may lose money at some point. It's going to happen. Each one of us, that'll happen. It's not that other people will get ahead of us, and that's going to happen as well. But the greatest problem in life is that time to time, we love something more than we love Jesus. And we build our lives on other stones. And those stones, those other stones can begin to identify or begin to define our identity which will always lead us to great disappointment. And that's why Peter says that Jesus is the most perfect and precious cornerstone. And we are to align ourselves around the mission of Jesus. And I hope you see how Peter is, is, is intertwining twining this concept of identity. 
All right, let's go to the second image. The first image is cornerstone. The second image is the priesthood, royal priesthood. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word priest. Maybe a photo like this, someone who is monk-like, peaceful, stoic, quiet, contemplative. Let me, let me give you an overview of priesthood in the Old Testament. And I'm, I'm about to throw out lots of names, so, so please hang in there with me. So here we go. It all starts back with a guy named Abraham who lived 2,000 years before Jesus. And God appears to Abraham and says, Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your children's children. So their assignment was to bless other people. Then out of Abraham, there's Isaac and God chooses Isaac. And out of Isaac, God calls Jacob. And Jacob has, he has 12 sons. You may recognize some of his names, of these names. Joseph, Benjamin, Reuben, Simon. And those 12 sons become what's known as the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's one more son. His name is Levi. And, and, and God appears to Levi and says, Levi, I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to set you and your entire clan, all your off, offsprings aside, and create what's known as the kingdom of priests. And their job was to be a priest for all the tribes of Israel. And they were called the Levites because they, were, they came from Levi. Now, what do priests do? What did they do back then? They, they did a lot of things. But I would say that they were, first and foremost, custodians of temple worship. In other words, they made sure that worship happened flawlessly with two primary responsibilities. Number one, they would point people to God. And number two, they made sacrifices on behalf of, of God's people. Now, I think there's a misnomer about how often sacrifices were made in the temple. Some people think, okay, it only happened one time, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would come with the innocent lamb and would offer the lamb for God's people once a year. True. But at the same time, sacrifices were done every day, morning and evening, offering burnt sacrifices, all kinds of sacrifices, because people of God could not approach God because God is holy. And, and here's something else you need to know about Levi. He had two great-grandsons. You may recognize their names, Moses and Aaron. Did you know that they were Levites? And what did Moses do? What's he, what's he known for? Moses is the one who rescued Hebrews out of Egypt. And what did he do? He would point them to God because he was a Levite. He would rescue them out of slavery from Egypt. And Aaron, his brother, became the very first chief high priest. So my point here is this. They are very important people. When you read the Old Testament throughout, you'll see the Levites after Levites, all pointing people to God, all the way to the Old Testament, the very last book in the Old Testament. It's written by, who, who wrote the very last book in the Old Testament? As my professor in seminary said, it's a very famous Italian prophet by the name of Malachi. He's Malachi, okay? It's Malachi, not Malachi. And listen to what Malachi says in chapter 3, verse 1. He writes, listen, the day's coming. I will send my messenger and this person will prepare the way of the Lord. 
And Malachi, he, he closes the book and drops the mic and, and God goes silent for 400 years. Did you know that Malachi was a Levite and he's the very last, per last person pointing to the New Testament era? And how does the New Testament begin? Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 5. Listen to this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. Okay, that's a sign. Levite, a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of who? Aaron. Aaron is a Levite. So two Levites come together. They have a Levite child, son. Who is that person? John the Baptist. Did you know that John the Baptist was a Levite? And what was he known for? He is the one who points to Jesus saying, look, look, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. His job is to point because he's a Levite. Now, why am I getting so excited about this? It's because of what Jesus said on the cross. Do you remember the very last words of Jesus on the cross when he said, it is finished. It is finished. What is finished? Jesus' death on the cross, when he said it is finished, he's referring back to the Old Testament temple worship sacrifice, saying it is finished. You no longer have to sacrifice animals because I am the final sacrifice. I am dying for the sins of the world. I'm giving my life away so that you can have life. He ends the priesthood of the Old Testament. And because his work is finished, our work begins. Because from this point on, God gives the followers of Jesus a brand new identity. We become the new Levites. We are the chosen generation of royal priesthood. And our identity is fundamentally defined by what God thinks of us because Jesus is the most important person in our life. And what matters the most is how he thinks of us, that we are chosen, we're royal and holy. So our identity is that of a priest. We, we are, you're a priest, I'm a priest, we are a royal priesthood. And because of our identity, God has given us a new assignment. And that assignment is to point people back to God. That is our job. That is your assignment. We stand in the gap between God and humanity. And our role is to simply tell people, it doesn't matter if they're stumbling. They may be a stumbling block. They may be against the, the, the words and the promises of God. It doesn't matter. Our job is to simply invite them and say, hey, I just want you to point to who Jesus is and be hospitable. And we do that by making sacrifices. What does that mean in verse 5? To offer spiritual sacrifice. That we are willing to be inconvenienced. We are willing to be disrupted. So that people who do not know Jesus can know who he is. You know, last week, while I was at work, I received a phone call from Lisa and my wife. And she says this to me. She goes, honey. Do you have a Bible that you can bring? I'm thinking to myself, duh, I'm a pastor. I have access to Bible everywhere. Wherever I go, I know where Bible is. I said, why do you need a Bible? She said, just, just bring me a Bible. So I look around. I found this old uh, 2021 version of our confirmation seventh grade Bible. So it's in a book 
case and I'm bringing it home. And she tells me this story. She goes, I've been befriending this grocery clerk at a local grocery store for the last two, three years. And I feel compelled to give him a Bible. Now, most good husbands would smile and say, oh, that's great. That's, that's, that's so good. Not Jay Lee. I don't know what got to me, but at that moment, here's what I said. This is what I said to her. No, that's for the Gideons. Let the Gideons distribute the Bible. You know the Gideons that would put Bibles into hotels? And I don't know why I'd said that. But she was so kind to me, with full of grace, and just smiled, and we just kind of carried on. So fast forward to this week, Tuesday, I get a text. And here's a text that she sends me. She goes, please pray for my friend for a receptive heart. So let me translate this from Christian lingo to everyday life. She's saying, I'm, I'm about to deliver the Bible. I'm going in. That's what she's saying to me. And I don't know why. I was a little annoyed. I'm like, okay, you're asking me to stop what I'm doing and to pray for you because you're about to deliver the Bible. I got a little annoyed. I'll just be honest with you. And, uh, and here's, here's what's really silly. This is how God works. You know what I was doing at that moment? I was in the middle of Tuesday worship planning session with Greg Hobbs, Emily Skates, planning for this morning's worship where I was going to talk about being nice to strangers to point to Jesus. Okay. So, so that afternoon, I, I come home. And I said, how, how did it go, honey? How did everything go? And she has a just big, bright, beaming smile on her face. And she says this. He said, the clerk said, oh, thank you so much. I've been wanting a Bible. And I did not know how to get it. And I did not know how to get it. Now, as Christians, we may think, gosh, Bible is accessible everywhere. What do you mean you don't know how to get it? But you just need to think differently. People don't know. And I, I share this story to say that you just never know how others will be receptive to hear God, or to hear about God. And our job is to simply point people to Jesus. You just never know about God's timing, how God works. Remember that photo I showed you of a priest? That is not a random Google stock photo that I found. He's a real priest. His name is Michael Judge. Michael Judge was a Franciscan priest in New York City. He was actually the chaplain for New York City Fire Department. On one Tuesday morning around 9 a.m., he gets a phone call. He gets on the truck because they've been told the story was that perhaps a small plane hit accidentally into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Now, some of you are old enough to remember exactly where you were on that day. When the news broke, priest Michael Judge hops off the truck. He goes into the lobby of the tower, and there was incredible pandemonium panic taking place. People were rushing out, but the first responders and firemen and firewomen, they were, they were, they were going up the stairs into the danger. And you know what Michael Judge did? He would just quietly pace back and forth in the lobby, praying and interceding for the first responders, just praying over them, just interceding on their behalf. And around 10.30 a.m., you know the rest of the story. The tower crumbled, and the weight of the debris crushed him. And priest Michael Judge 
was the first recorded identifiable victim of 9-11. He is victim number one on the list. You see, as Christians, we have a priest, and his name is Jesus. And he is interceding for us right now. I don't know what kinds of challenges and burdens and and hardships that you're bringing in. I don't know what the kinds of weight that you're carrying right now, but I want you to know that our God is praying for us right now, interceding for us on our behalf. He knows us, and this Jesus is also inviting us to pick up the mission where he left off. And the mission of Jesus, our assignment is to reveal a little bit of glimpse of the Garden of Eden wherever we live, work, and play. Because we're the new temple. We are the intersection between heaven and earth where it overlaps. And we get to display God's delightfulness, who he is. And this is the calling that we have, a brand new identity as a royal priesthood, pointing people to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your triune nature, how you invite us into your community so for us to be sent out. And thank you for that beautiful image of of us being living stones, and you are the living stone. We're grateful that absolutely nothing can separate us from from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.